Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. So we are entering the last big week of 2023 for the markets. This before investors and traders start to wind down for the year. This week, there will be a lot for them to chew on, thinking about important data released, as well as over a dozen central bank meetings set to take place. So joining us today to set up the week, glad to welcome back for the CIO Strategy Snapshot, Jason. Andrejo, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Uh, Jason, thank you for dropping by on this Monday morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Jen. Yep. Happy Monday. Good to be here. So, Jason, as I alluded to a lot on deck this week as we begin to close out the year, perhaps a good starting point, that being the Fed, other central bank meetings, it sounds like a lot will be taking shape, which the market will be focusing on. What are you expecting from these meetings as well as what we can expect to hear from these central bank officials? Well, there are 13 central bank meetings, like major central bank meetings this week, so it's a lot's going to happen. Uh, the focal point, of course, will be the Fed, which meets on Tuesday and Wednesday at 2 p.m. We will get the Fed announcement of what they chose to, you know, hike rates or not, and think the probability of that is pretty much zero. Uh, we'd also then get an updated statement. Um, and in particular, the, the key part of that will be what changed in terms of the Fed's summary of economic projections for, you know, growth for next year, for 2025, <clears throat> and also any change to the Fed's dot plot which is the kind of scatter plot of the different FOMC participants, like their expectations for where the Fed funds rate would be at the end of next year, end of 24 or 25 and 26. And then you take the median, that that's kind of essentially the assessment of how much the Fed expects to cut rates next year. So the focus will very much be on those updated economic projections, in particular, you know, this, this top plot in terms of what is the Fed going to do for cuts. Not only is the Fed not likely to hike this week, but you know, the, you know, very, very high likelihood is that they're done hiking at all. I think it's with the market's pricing the less than a 5% chance that they hike at all again at uh, whether it's now or in January at some point later next year. So the focus really is on how much do they cut. That's been the focus for the past couple of weeks in the markets. How much they cut, um, how soon, and in particular, how much might they do sort of preemptive Fed rate cuts, meaning will they be willing to cut even if the economy is growing around trend because inflation is falling. So at this point in time, you know, the, the current dot plot implies only one cut relative to current Fed market pricing. Uh, we'd expect I'll show 50 basis points of cuts for next year in the dot plot. I think that's a reasonable expectation, whereas the market is currently pricing about four and a half cuts. So more than double what the, the Fed is likely to show. Uh, the reason why I think, you know, at this point it's going to be you know 50 basis points of cuts or two cuts uh, is the unemployment rate actually fell with the November payrolls report. It went from 39 to 3.7%. And the job growth in November came in at 199,000, you know, roughly right in line with expectations. It was a little bit concentrated, meaning not a lot of breadth in terms of the sectors uh, showing job growth. But the overall story continues to be a labor market that remains you know, relatively resilient. If that's the case, the consumption remains re- relatively resilient. And therefore, the economy isn't showing signs of you know, it's slowing down. And therefore, the Fed... You know, doesn't need to kind of signal an aggressive you know, rate cutting path for next year, and the, and the payroll support kind of gives them justification for doing that. Uh, you know, we did see the market price, you know, at a sizable percentage of the probability of a cut for uh, March timeframe, and also took out you know, almost a full cut all of next year. So if the Fed only does 
under uh, 50 basis points of cuts for next year, that's, you know, not wouldn't be surprising for the market. So all this is to say a lot of focus on the Fed, but unless we get a truly shocking or unexpected CPI print on Tuesday, uh, the Fed may end up being relatively uneventful uh, in terms of, you know, it's doing what it's expected to do, which is less than the market is pricing. But for now, this is kind of, you know, kind of you know, par for the course for what the Fed would give guidance. In terms of other major central banks, uh, a lot of focus will be on the ECB in terms of the guidance they will give for rate cut next year. There is a lot of discussion whether they would go aggressively and, and sooner than the Fed. Our thinking is that the Fed probably doesn't start cutting until either the May or June timeframe. It'll take that while for the economic data to slow sufficiently to, to warrant those cuts. And the ECB is not going to want to be sort of front-loading that or front-running that too much. So probably a similar timeframe for when the, you know, they would uh, imply any sort of cuts for next year or the magnitude of cuts. The other major central bank that is you know, in focus is the Bank of Japan. Uh, it's the one central bank that you know, still actually has negative interest rates, still is undertaking some sort of modest yield curve control. So the expectation, and the, based off of guidance from senior BOJ officials last week, is that they could start to pivot on that as soon as this month, uh, meaning they could either raise rates from negative to zero or they could outright drop their yield curve control. Um, that was kind of the market interpretation of these comments from DOJ officials last week. Chances are it's more likely they may not do anything until January, and this is just sort of prepping the market for that. So there is scope for you know the market to um, to kind of walk back a little what it did in terms of pricing for for the BOJ of last week. All of that matters because as we saw in the summer, if the BOJ moves to a slightly more restrictive policy stance. Um, that generally has an impact for global yields. All else equal, meaning yields could back up. So if the BOJ is you know, hawkish in that regards, the Fed is perceived to be relatively hawkish, we could see yields back up a little bit after you know, a very significant decline in yields over the past six weeks or so. So that's the scope for, for what we can get from central banks this week. Um, from a market perspective, it may not be shocking, but if it comes out sort of roughly in line, but I think that likely means yield back up a little bit. Okay, so it does sound like there will be a lot to digest, and we will see what the next few days deliver on the central bank front. That was a great setup. So thank you, Jason, for helping us to manage expectations there. I do want to pivot a bit, acknowledge how you recently published a new blog title is Reflecting on a Year of Inflections, in which you discuss the frequent twists and turns in financial markets throughout the course of 2023. So, Jason, what do you attribute as the cause of these frequent inflections? Well, just to give a sort of a perspective of what I mean by these inflection points, we just think about where the markets are today versus where they were, you know, four months ago. The S&P on Friday closed at a year-to-date high. Its prior high was on July 31st. But from that high in July, uh, the markets, the S&P ultimately fell um, just over 10% by you know, mid-August, or, or sorry, by late mid-October. And then very rapidly in the course of about six weeks, completely recover that loss. On the same kind of token, if we look at where the 10-year Treasury yield was at the end of uh, uh, you know, July, uh, it was a little over 4%. It ended up rising all the way to 5%, and then it fell back to even slightly under 4.2%. So almost came full circle. So you've seen throughout this year these kind of moves where the markets kind of move very quickly in one direction, and then they kind of reverse or inflect and go back to the other direction. They may be like that for a few months and they likely go the other direction. So why has this been happening? And ultimately, I'd say in simple terms, it's these inflections have resulted from investors basically spending the entire year oscillating between pricing and a soft landing for the economy as a base case 
and then going back towards a recession uh, as, the, as the base case. And, you know, those probabilities between those two scenarios have shifted kind of back and forth. And that's really been sort of what's driving these significant market uh, moves. You know, if we think about the S&P again, you know, it's sold off and rallied really based on this shifting likelihood of a soft landing. We saw that, you know, uh, starting kind of late in the spring when coming out of the banking crisis, the expectation was we'd have a recession. Uh, as it turned out, the economy was proven to be far more resilient than expected. We saw equities rise. The S&P was up 10% in June and July. And that's when the markets really moved towards you know, pricing in a soft landing. By the fall, concerns were that because of the rapid rise in rates, that in fact, that will lead to hard landing next year. Equity sold off. As rates have declined, as the economy's cooled, those hard landing concerns for next year have they receded and equities have gone higher. So that's really been the story this year for why we've gotten these inflection points. It really comes down to what is the market's perceptions and sort of implicit probability for either a soft landing or hard landing that's driven the equity market, it's driven your yields across the curve, it's driven you know, the US dollar to some extent. Um, and sort of separate to all that, but oil prices have also had significant sort of inflection ups and downs as the years evolved. So, Jason, one takeaway from the blog, I'm seeing how you mentioned when assessing how evolving macroeconomic conditions impacted market performance in 2023, uh, two lessons to be offered. What are those two lessons? Well, the first is that sort of the sequencing of economic developments matters a great deal for market performance. You know, we think about, you know, a year ago at this time, our expectation was that, you know, growth would slow, you know, um, in the first half of 23 and then ultimately kind of, you know, accelerate as we got into year end. We also expected inflation to decline as the year proceeded, you know, but in some way growth would probably slow faster than inflation. And that would you know, make for a little bit more challenging environment for U.S. risk assets, at least at the start of the year. But ultimately, you know, the idea that I had in mind at this time last year and even published a blog titled Race to the Bottom is that the outlook is really going to depend on this kind of race to the bottom or decline or growth and inflation in the U.S. The faster one declines versus the other, that's going to tip the market's outlook and the performance. So a year ago, we were thinking that growth is probably going to decline faster than inflation. That would be a more challenging environment for risk assets. You know, but if it turned out that inflation you know, sort of essentially won the race or was leading the race, I mean, it was falling faster uh, than growth was, then you could actually get a better market regime this year. And really, that's almost exactly what's happened. And, and then some. You know, we've seen headline inflation fall from 6.5% in December of last year. It's now down to 3.2%. Core CPI has gone from 5.7% to 4%. So really steady progress pretty much throughout the year for inflation. Yet, if you just take the unemployment rate, a gauge of, of, of the growth side of the economy, it's gone from 3.5% in December to three, last December to 3.7% in this past November. So barely budging higher. So it's an environment where you've had resilient growth and steady disinflation, that's a good environment for risk assets. So the sequencing of how that played out really determined, had a big influence on how the market performed. Had it been in the reverse, we probably would have been talking about a very different market performance this year. The second lesson from this year of inflections in the market is that uh, when the macro environment is highly uncertain, investor conviction on what, exactly what's going on and why, when that's low, it really only takes a few data points for the investors to swing pretty sizable amounts of probability from, say, a recession outcome to a soft landing and vice versa. And as that happens, that's really causes these large inflections and pretty rapid in, in moves in the market, again, as we've seen just even over the past six weeks, as the market's gone from worried about hard lending expectations you know, in 2024 to now pricing in a soft landing. 
Um, and really, at some weekend in both cases, or, or at least in the summer and in the fall, you know, there's a few data points that matter, but ultimately, in both cases, it was below consensus, ex- you know, consensus expectations for June CPI. That was a capitulation point for many investors embracing the soft line in the summer. And similarly, we got a below expectation uh, print for October CPI, roughly in mid-November, that really galvanized investors to thinking, all right, the Fed doesn't have to hike nearly as much, rates can come down, and that was the final sort of catalyst for, for equities to move higher. So again, those two lessons, the sequencing of how growth and inflation evolve matters a great deal for markets. And as a few data points come in that change the view of how those conditions are evolving, that can cause very rapid inflection points in the markets that cause really big momentum shifts. So, Jason, based on those lessons, what does this all mean for the market outlook going into 24, and what should investors do about it? Well, I'd say if we apply these two lessons, um, it gives us reasons to be both kind of cautious and optimistic on the market at the start of 2024. Yeah, the reason for some caution is that it's still likely that another market inflection you know, will occur. Uh, you know, with equities and other risk assets, again, turning down, um, even though in that environment, maybe rates also decline. The trigger for such an inflection would be if investors shift, you know, even decent probability from, you know, a soft landing being the base case back towards a recession starting at some point in 2024. The reason why that could happen is we'll see some, or we expect to see slowing growth data uh, early in the year, you know, may, might start to materialize, you know, in February or the March timeframe. Um, and a good example of that is if we get a payroll support that is you know, below 50,000, it's really going to raise questions in investors' minds whether is this still consistent with a soft landing, a bit of a soft patch, or is the labor market cooling and cooling now rapidly in a way that could trigger us uh, flipping into a uh, into recession ultimately next year. So that's kind of the context for why there needs to be at least some caution. These inflection points, this inflection-driven market, it's unlikely to invent just because we turn the calendar year. I'd say the reason for optimism, though, just at the start of the year, is that while another inflection point is certainly possible at some point, perhaps in the first quarter, the data for at least the next month or two should continue to exhibit kind of this ideal combination of ongoing disinflation and resilient growth. And if that's the case, that's a backdrop for risk assets, equities specifically, can keep rallying. We saw that with the Friday's payroll, or the payrolls report from November that came out on Friday. It was in line with expectations in terms of your know, job growth around 200,000. Um, other data points within it suggested, again, sort of a resilient labor market. It's unlikely then, therefore, consumer spending is going to really drop significantly or at all during the holiday season. The anecdotes, you know, again, suggest consumers are willing to spend. So if that's the case, then the December data that we get in the first couple weeks of January should still continue to be quite solid. Yet inflation data can continue to trend lower, especially in the first quarter. So if that's the case, then the path of least resistance is for the markets to go higher, all else equal, uh, especially when there could be favorable seasonals as investors, as the calendar turns, look to put you know, money to work you know, at the start of the new year. Um, but that shouldn't be confused with being really kind of structurally bullish on the outlook. You know, if you're going to be sort of think conditions and the markets are pricing for a very benign, almost perfect landing um, for these immaculate disinflation story for this year, for that continue next year, you should also think that this inflection-driven market will also continue, and therefore there'll be a sort of some sort of pullback at some point. Um, which means, as a result, the overall guidance we have is still for investors to look for quality assets, whether it's quality bonds, quality equities, as a way to kind of ride through what still should be a range-bound kind of choppy markets as we move into the first quarter, even if we're drifting to the top end of the range uh, in that environment for, for equities. Um, so that's just important context as we kind of go through this period. 
uh, while things are looking relatively optimistic, we're certainly not you know, out of the woods in terms of the macro environment and the soft landing actually materializing. There's still a period of uncertainty how it's all going to play out um, in the first quarter and maybe you know, a little bit further to the first half of next year. Well, Jason, thank you for keeping us current there on CIO's Outlook and for outlining those considerations when it comes to positioning. It will be interesting to see how conditions evolve. So I do want to, again, point our listeners to Jason's blog, which he has been making reference to this morning. That's reflecting on a year of inflections. For clients of UBS, be sure to reach out to your UBS financial advisor to receive a copy directly. Though, thank you again, Jason, for dropping by to set up another week. I know we have one more CIO strategy snapshot before we close out the year. So do look forward to regrouping next week to have our final 2023 conversation. You're welcome and have a great weekend. Thank you, Jason. You as well. Again, today we have been joined by Jason Trejo, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office from UBS Studios. I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.